All right, good morning, New Life. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Hey, so glad that you showed up today. My name is Chris. Just like to welcome everybody that's here, also those that are worshiping with us right now on our online campus, or perhaps you're watching this at a later date. Thanks for showing up today online or here uh, live in Kearney. So uh, is everybody having a good, a good summer so far? You, yeah, you're loving the humidity. I know I'm dating this, this uh, sermon right now online, but it is humid, guys. So if you see some sweat marks on me, just grace, all right? Church, we're at church. Please have grace, but it's a good day to be at church. We are in week number five of our current teaching series, Guardrails. Uh, right now, as of, as of today, Pastor Jeff is with the team in El Salvador, and so thus you get me today, but we are praying for him. Pastor Jeff, we love you and the team. We're playing for you guys as you are ministering down in El Salvador. But we're in week number five of our uh, series, Guardrails. It's going to finish up next week. You're not going to want to miss next week. It's going to be a powerful Sunday. Uh, Today, again, once again, we're in Matthew chapter 23. So hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you would open up to Matthew 23. If you have a device, you can go to the Bible app. You can even access the event for today. Search for New Life or enter our zip code. You're going to get those notes right now. So Matthew chapter 23, just to recap and bring us all up to speed if you haven't uh, been here during this series or maybe you missed a week. In Matthew 22, just the chapter before, there's a group of people known as the Sadducees. Now they're a sect of Judaism, kind of like a denomination, if you will. And they did not believe that once you die, that your body is resurrected. So they come to Jesus, they're, they're confronting him about this doctrine, and he answers them, basically silences them, and then the Pharisees, so you have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, another sect of Judaism, hears Jesus shut them down, they show up, and so they're asking him questions, and once again in Matthew 22, Jesus silences them with his answer, they They listen to him, they hear what he has to say, and really there was no response, there was no comeback that they had for him. And it's in that setting when this group of Pharisees and scribes are with Jesus that he begins to go in Matthew 23 uh, on this on this journey, this verbal journey that we get to listen into. And as he talks to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, we're going to listen into and derive from what he says some guardrails of how we should live our life. How do we stay on the right path versus the wrong path? So along with these Pharisees was a group called the scribes, or your version might translate it, the teachers of the law. They were the biblical scholars or the they were the scholars of the law that they had at that time, the biblical law. They would translate, or excuse me, they would, they would, um, they would write down and, and they would make copies of the law, right? They would write it down. They were very detail-oriented, but like all of humanity, left to our own devices, we will corrupt what God has given us. So that's what they did, and they added to God's law all these kinds of traditions that they made up of what it meant to follow God. And there were a whole slew of God's commands and God's word that they were totally, you know, rejecting. And so their whole, their whole MO was 
how they look to other people. There was this selfish, prideful posturing that you see in the scribes and Pharisees. They had a lot of influence, religious influence with people. People looked to them. They listened to them. And that really built up their ego, right? They were on an ego trip. And so Jesus is dealing with a lot of uh, the issues that he sees in the scribes and Pharisees. And so in this whole teaching series, our whole goal is to listen in, and I hope this is your goal today, to listen in to what Jesus is saying and, and to ask the question, how did they get where they are or where they were, right? How did they get there? And if I could listen to Jesus' words, I can understand what he values And then I can ask myself, how did they get where they were? Because I don't want to go there. And so you see the teaching of Jesus becomes a guardrail, a guardrail for our life. And so we're going to listen in as Jesus uses this phrase over and over. And he says this, he says, woe to you, woe to you, not a phrase that we use nowadays. So let me just explain it once again. Woe is a, is a word of judgment. And so Jesus, when he says, woe to you, he's pronouncing a judgment on the scribes and Pharisees, but there's this undertone in Jesus' uh, communication with them that he has this broken heart. He's not taking any joy in pronouncing judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees as he illustrates all of their, how they've broken through the guardrails and how they're really off in the ditch and they've blown over the cliff. There's no great joy that he's taking in this. And so you see this broken, wounded love of Jesus as he pronounces this judgment when he says, woe to you. And so if I'm you, I'm asking myself once again, how did they get there? How can I stay within the guardrails? What does the path that God has for me really look like? What does the ditch look like? And how can I stay on this side of the guardrail, right? So I hope that that is, uh, this, that is your, your pursuit today. Now, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees, once again, just to set it up, is they were, they were more concerned with the outside than they were the inside, In fact, they valued looking godly instead of being godly. That was their value system. Their value system was all about looking godly, whether to other people or their own view of themselves. They valued looking godly instead of being godly. Now, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, open it up there. We're going to start in verse 27 with the first woe to you for today. And it says this. This is Jesus again. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Everybody say, whoa. Whoa. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, whoa. Whoa. All right. Did you feel, did you feel something right there? Right. Yeah. It's an indictment. When Jesus says, well, it's an indictment. He's bringing charges against them for their hypocrisy, for their, their blindness. It was meant to get their attention, right? It was meant to grab a hold of their attention, and it should get our attention today as we listen in. We should go, okay, what is he about to say? What's going on with these guys? And certainly if we feel or sense the Holy Spirit saying to us, Woe to you. We should hit the brakes and stop and say, okay, God, what is it that you're saying to me? One word in the metaphor that Jesus used. Remember, he said, you are like whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside, but on the inside are full of, one version says, dead men's 
bones. And so this metaphor that he's using, one word that he uses to, that really reveals the issue with the scribes and Pharisees is the word, at least translated into the English Standard Version, this word appear. All right? Everybody say appear. All right. It, it, you appear right. Now, I know I'm going to date myself a little bit, and there may be some younger people in the room that, that have no clue uh, the reference I'm going to give, but I'm sure you have a smartphone. Just Google it if you have no idea, all right? But some of you are going to remember one of the great, if not the greatest show in all of American TV history, and that is The Andy Griffith Show, right? The Andy Griffith Show, my, probably my favorite show. I asked my wife, we have Netflix, that's about all we have, and uh, I watch Andy Griffith all the time, right? I've seen all the episodes. My favorite character is Barney Fife. He's the greatest character that has ever been invented um, in the history of television, Barney Fife. If you don't know Barney Fife, you're going to miss out on this, uh, this illustration, but he's a great guy. So one of my, my favorite episodes, all my favorite episodes have to do with Barney Barney is central to the story, right? Later on, when Barney left the show, it's not worth even watching to me, right? When it turns, color, it turns into color, that's about the line. But this one episode where Barney, he decides he saved up all his money, and he's got this great day. He's going to buy himself a car, right? They only, had, they only had the police car. Barney decides, I'm going to buy myself a car. He has $300, um, just to show you what a... Andy Griffith, expert, I mean, $300, he's going to buy himself a car, and he found in the newspaper this perfect car, and the description of this car is, you know, it's the classic, this, this car, it only has, you know, X amount of miles, it's only driven by a little old lady on Sundays, right, and, and so she wants $300 for this car, and that's how much she has, and so she comes down from Mount Pilot, right, and she brings the car, and she is just the classic cliche little old lady who gets out of the car with her cane and she has her hair done up and she's just so sweet and she gets out of the car and just polishes the, the rear, the, you know, the mirror and, and she's, she's talking about this car and how it was her husband's car and how he took such great care of it and Barney is just smitten with this lady. The car looks great. It's polished. It looks fantastic and without even driving it or taking it down to Gomer at the, at the gas station, right, to get it checked out, he buys it and Andy's trying to get him, hey, you need a, $300 is a lot of money. I think it's not even worth $100. But he's like, no, Andy, you don't understand. I know, I know what I'm doing. He pays $300 for the car, gets everybody together, Aunt B, Opie, you know, Gomer, they're going out for Thelma Lou. They're getting in the car and they're going out for a drive. In the car, and sure enough, you know, as halfway through the drive, they start hearing some clanks and some clunks. And by the end, by the end of this drive, <laughs> you see Barney, Barney in the front seat of the car and his head down, and the car's being pushed by Aunt B and Opie and all of them, right? And it was a lemon, right? He, he was taken. He was swindled, right? But on the outside, it appeared like a great deal. It appeared like, man, this is the best deal ever, but he was, he was duped. He was duped. It reminds me of when I was in college. Lynette and I first got married, and we, we drank iced tea all the time for some reason back then. Kool-Aid and iced tea. Unfortunately, we realized how much sugar goes in Kool-Aid. We switched to iced tea, put the same amount of sugar in, I don't know, but <laughs> tea's better for you. And so we, I had this tea glass, right? And I, I had this tea glass in the refrigerator all the time, usually. And I remember one time I went to grab the ice cold tea and I drank it and there was something 
green and fuzzy on the, on, the, on the top, and it just, you know what I mean? So you're expecting something wonderful, but on the inside, it's not wonderful. Actually, actually, I think it was grease that was left over, right, that she had put in my tea glass, if I remember correctly, <laughs> from cooking. It was something like that. It was some, I blocked most of it out, right? I had to dig deep for this message to remember it. But on the outside, things can look wonderful, but on the inside, everything is not okay. And that was the deal with the scribes and Pharisees, and it can be the deal with us, even if you've been around Christianity and around the church for years and years and years. So in this moment, let me just say, as Jesus is dealing with them, he's not criticizing good behavior. We use the word righteous. That's pure, godly behavior. He's not criticizing godliness or righteousness, but he's dealing with the driving force behind the behavior of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's important to know that this entire chapter is not an invitation to just, let's just do away with good works because we might go down the slippery slope of doing it so that other people think that we're amazing. In fact, one of the missions of every Christian is to produce, the Bible calls it, good works so that other people see the good works. However, the result being that they would bring glory to God. Look what Matthew 5 says in verse 16. It says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Did you ever know that, that our good works can be seen? In fact, the motivation should be that they are seen. But here's the qualifier, that they would see our good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the deal. The difference between Matthew 5 and the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, the difference is who gets the glory? Who is on center stage? Who is exalted? Am I doing my works that other people might see it and it result in God getting greater glory because of them coming to know Christ or becoming a greater disciple of Christ or they experience some... Uh, some some spiritual fruit that comes out of the believer and and God gets the glory from that or are my good works so that I might get the glory write this down if you're taking notes this this is crucial when when good works glorify me I crash through the guardrail this is the description of the other side of the ditch it's it's a life where my good works glorify me or lift me up or place me on center stage. And when that happens, I crash through the guardrail. So the guardrail should be in our life that God would get all the glory, that I'm not trying to take any of his glory. Because only he, only he, I know there's spotlights on me today, right? But only he is worthy of the spotlight of my life. Only he is worthy of that spotlight. This whole idea of being a Christian and being, in the, being a part of God's family is that we are in a kingdom. And guess what? In a kingdom, there is a king. There is a king. And guess what? I'm not the king. He's the king. Only he is worthy to sit upon the throne. But when I try to climb up on the throne and just kind of nudge him over and scoot over a little bit, Jesus, so that I could sit on the throne... Uh, of this kingdom. It doesn't work that way. He does not share his throne with anybody. But when I try to do that, I will crash right through the guardrails. I will crash hard and I may even take someone else out with me as the scribes and Pharisees did. The other convicting, the convicting term that Jesus uses 
in this metaphor is this word hypocrite. And, and it's a word that's probably repulsive to some of us. If you've been around church for some time, you know, everybody, everybody says that all Christians are hypocrites, and we kind of get tired of that term. But this word hypocrite is, is something we need to evaluate. Jesus used this term about people who were religious, who were the spiritual leaders. They were seen as spiritual leaders at that time. A hypocrite is an actor. It's someone whose outside does not match the inside. Their integrity factor is very very low because the reality of who they are on the inside is not matching what's on the outside. And so this word hypocrite, we need to look at, we need to get this when we think about the word hypocrite and we think about this whole idea of our outward appearance, that God sees right through all of my acts, all of my good works, all of my good behavior. God sees right through everything and he looks at the heart. He looks at what is the driving force behind all of it. He sees. He, know, he looks right through. Does he want good things to come out of our behavior? Absolutely. Does he want good things to come out of our speech, the way we treat one another, the way that we are stewards of his resources? Does he want us to, to give and be generous? Absolutely. He wants our lives to overflow with good works. However, when we get enamored with the status that we feel by doing the good works because of the way we think of ourselves or other people see us, the the motivation is corrupt and he looks and he says, woe to you. So God wants us to have fruit in our lives of good works, but he's looking at the heart. What's generating that? We cannot. Here's the deal. The good works that flow out of true heart change that only God can do, we cannot manufacture that. We can't. I read a story about a four-passenger aircraft, and the engine had a certain part that was created by the manufacturer, and in the carburetor there was a butterfly disc that that controlled the, the air and the gas mixture, and so during an inspection on one specific aircraft in this, in this uh, line of aircrafts that came out, there was, a, there was a problem with that part. But the greater problem was the manufacturer had gone out of business. So they contracted another company that, that looked at the part, and they were going to create that same part using a technique known as reverse engineering. That's studying the part, trying to get the most... Uh, the most details that they can about this part, the characteristics, the design, the specs, and they're going to reverse engineer this part. And so they did that. But the problem was that the person, the company that made this part, did not understand the heat treatment requirements for this steel disc in this carburetor. They didn't understand the necessities for the, the heat treatment process and how that was done. And so that part malfunctioned in the plane it crashed. Now, this was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. No, they didn't have airplanes back then. But it's the problem with them. It's the problem for us still. It's the temptation for us here today. And let me illustrate it with this. Write this down in your notes. When I try to reverse engineer what only God can do, I crash through the guardrail. I try to look at what what happens when true life change happens from the inside. What's the 
the fruit of that. I can even look at scripture. What's the fruit of that? And I go, okay, I see that fruit. I see that characteristic of a life being changed. And I'm going to reverse engineer that. I'm going to activate my will. I'm going to activate my discipline. And as long as I do these things, you know, I will be this thing. But we cannot do that when we try to reverse engineer what only God can do through spirit change. We will crash. And, you know, we may begin with a pure desire, desire to please God. We may start to say, okay, this is what it, this is what it takes to please you, God. This is what it takes to, to live for you, God. But acts of righteousness generated from our soul, our souls, our mind, our will, and our emotions, that's generated from our soul rather than our spirit and the spirit of God, will cause us to crash every time because it will not produce something of the Spirit. What we are after is Spirit-generated fruit. And if it starts in our soul, it's not going to produce. We will crash through the guardrails every time. Ultimately, our sinful nature that we all have to deal with until that day our salvation is complete, our sinful nature that tempts us, it will ultimately deceive us. It will cause us to take pride in our righteousness. It will take us down a road that we don't want to go. That self-centered independence, that pride, uh, which is the hallmark of our sinful nature, will taint us. And we will become driven by our own pride. We will be driven by the, the, the rush that we get when we can manipulate other people or be seen in a certain light by other People, you see, good, excuse me, God looks past all of the externals and he looks at our heart to see if it's authentic, to see if he has done a work in, in us. And he knows. He knows the true motivation of our heart, but he looks, all, he looks all past that to see our heart. Look how Jesus moves from the metaphoric to the specific in verse 28. He says this, So you also outwardly appear, say appear, you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So now we move from the whitewashed tombs and the dead men's bones to you appear righteous, but inside there's hypocrisy and there's lawlessness. If you're exploring Christ today, you've yet to place your trust in him and surrender your life to him. Can I just... My prayer is this, that, that this guardrail would help to paint a proper picture of what it means to pursue Jesus, to be changed by him, to follow him, to be on the path. Nothing that you can do will make you right with God. It is God's free gift. We call it grace, undeserved, his favor, through your surrendered trust in him that makes you right with God. Don't get hung up on how you think you must appear, how you think you must act in order to please God. You must first start with surrender. Let God change you from the inside and and will come outside. Amen? But let me say this also, if you're exploring Christ, or maybe you feel like you've crossed that line. Many people are willing to come to Jesus and, and give him their sin. Say, Jesus, here, I'm a mess. I've messed up. I can't do it. I've done. I've here's the sin in my life and maybe you've hit a wall because of your sin and it's very easy to come and say, Jesus, be my, we use the word savior, save me, right? Deal with my sin. 
So oftentimes, many people, Jesus, I'm okay with you being my Savior. But what about his other title of Lord? He cannot be Savior and not be our Lord. We don't come and just bring him our sin and yet, and yet hold our life back. It doesn't work that way. He is only Savior as he is Lord. Faith that saves us from, changes us from the inside out says, Jesus, I believe that you're able to deal with my sin, but I also, because you're able to deal with my sin, I believe that you're worthy of my life. And so I surrender. So if you're exploring Christ, let this paint a proper picture But when you bring him your sin and let him change you from the inside out, don't just give him your sin. Give him your life. Can I get an amen today? Amen. Amen. If you're surrendered, if you're walking surrendered to Christ, and maybe you've been journeying with the Lord for years and years and years, let Jesus' words in verses 27 through 28, let it be like a spotlight. You know, let it be like when you're driving down the road at, at night and You know, and the lights come into your windshield, and all of a sudden, as long as it was dark and there's no one coming, you don't see all the bugs and the dirt, right? But as soon as the light shines upon your windshield at night, it's like, whoa, whoa, man, you you, you click on the the sprayer and the windshield wipers. Let let God's word, not that you, you guys are a bunch of dirty, rotten people, but I think this is important for us to say, God, let your let your words as we're listening in today, let it be like a spotlight to reveal reality of my heart. Let it reveal who you are or who I am. Let it show me reality. Are my spiritual acts of righteousness as a Christian, are they God-driven or are they me-driven? Are they done so that people will see my name and lights or are they generated out of a heart that says, God, would you get all of the glory and would it result, would my good works result in others glorifying you? And God, help me. Help perfect that in me. Help my desires to be more pure and holy. You see, we can fool some people. We could, some of us are really good at it. i got to say, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. I could be real. I'm really good at this, you know? And some of you, the same way, we could fool people. But we cannot fool God. And it should be a sobering and hopefully a freeing thing to know, okay, I can't hide from you, God. You see reality. So how do I stay inside the guardrail? How do I stay on the path? How do I stay on the right path? Write this down if you're taking notes. Having a right heart keeps me inside the guardrail. Having a right heart. Now, let me just, let me just explain that. It's not just being a good person. It's not just being, you know, through your own filter, good intentions. A right heart is a heart that's been changed by God. It's, it's a heart that's yielded to God. It's one of the fruits uh, that we talk about of meekness. Meekness is strength in submission, right? That's what it means to have a right heart. And when God, when God looks at us, he's looking for that heart. And when we have a right heart, that will keep us within the guardrails. When, when God was looking for a king in the Old Testament to replace Saul, who was the king of Israel. He's looking for a king. There was a prophet named Samuel whose assignment was tasked to go out, and God was sending him out to, to identify this next king. And, and, and this reveals what God values as, as we talk about Matthew 23 and the Pharisees. Look what it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, The Lord does not see things the way you see them. This is God speaking to Samuel as he goes, as 
you go and look for this guy, here's what you need to know. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. God is looking at the heart, and ultimately um, the Lord chose David, a man that the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. You see, we can put polish on the outside. We can dress it up. We could, you know, we could whip ourselves into line when we come to church or when we're around those certain people, but our facade is just that. It's a facade. And God sees through it. And so if you're faking it, it should be a sobering thought that he sees right through it today. Hopefully it's a freeing thing. It's kind of like when, you know, you watch the YouTube videos and the prisoner or the, the person that's running from the police finally gives up. And you just realize, you got me. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of moment we have to come to with the Lord. You see me? God, you got me. I surrender. There are those who are caught in that trap. But like the Pharisees, they're blind to it. They didn't see. Jesus often, several times in Matthew 23, called them blind. And so there are those that they're caught in this trap of self-righteousness, man-generated, good works, and they're just completely blind to it. That's a dangerous place to be. There are those that are caught in this trap, and boy, it's very clear to, to those people. Maybe you're one of them. You know what? You know what? That, that's a definition of my life, but I, I know. I'm not deceiving myself. I know that who... I am when no one else is looking doesn't line up with what I put on. The answer to both of those, to both of those people is surrender. It's coming to God and saying, God, change me from the inside out. Make that your prayer today. God, would you let me see reality? Would you expose myself to me? that I may acknowledge reality. And if there is a heart that is driven to bring glory to God, to get low that he might be lifted up, still ask God, God, show me. And then don't take pride in what God has done. Give great glory to God. If there's a weakness, if there's an area, if there's a species of pride that's popping up in your life that really, you know, wants to be seen by other people, right? I remember when I was a young pastor, and uh, my former pastor might be listening to this. Uh, I was a youth pastor in Oklahoma. And, man, I had a, I, at that time, coming out of Bible college, I, I would say I had a disciplined devotional life. I had a disciplined devotional life, and I loved the Lord. I did. I genuinely loved God. I pursued him. But, but I, remember, I remember one time um, I would always get to church early. He would come in a little later after me, and, and I remember being in my office and I was doing something and, and I thought, oh, he's about to get here. I'm going to go in the sanctuary and pray and be praying. I, I got to confess that I did that, right? Just to, so that he would know that I was a man of God and I was passionately pursuing God. Yeah, right? I know it's lame, right? But I did that. And uh, it, it, was, it was misguided, impure motives to, that I would be seen in a certain light. And that's, that's maybe a... An, Somewhat innocent, yet a very slippery slope description of what I'm talking about. Because we could go to the far ditch and become like the Pharisees who are on the inside dead. 
and decaying. So Jesus says the same thing using a different metaphor in verse 25. Look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Once again, they're all about looking right, sounding like, appearing right, having the right talk, having the right look. But there's zero integrity. They're full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, Jesus is saying they're full of themselves. Their sinful nature is large and in charge. Even their religious acts are driven by selfish pride and the, the power that they get from manipulating other people. But then Jesus says something in verse uh, 26 that is, I think, far more profound than you might think at first glance. Look what he says. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. That the outside also may be clean. So does God intend that the outside of our life be clean? Yeah. Does he intend that there would be an overflow in our life of good works? We use this word holiness. That means purity like God that would flow out of our lives. Yes. He saves us. He rescues us from our sin. He does a work inside of our heart, and then he sets us on the path inside these guardrails. He sets us on a path to become more and more and more like him. But the big deal that I see in this passage of verse 26, which comes first, cleaning the inside or cleaning the outside? Well, Jesus says it's the outside. Write this down. God's work first on the inside will change me on the outside. Now this is, I know, where it gets, it gets confusing. It gets complicated because we are, we are called oftentimes through the New Testament to, to put away sin, to engage the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of holiness, to to reject sin and to do good works. But the thing, here's the thing, we need to allow God to change us from the inside and then let it out on the outside, simply cooperating with God, with my behavior, with my attitude, with my speech. It's a spiritual act that we surrender to God and say, okay, God, I'm not going to be in charge. I want you to be in charge. I want to be like the Bible the Bible in the New Testament, it talks about being led by the Spirit, and it gives this uh, simile of being intoxicated, right? It talks about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And so it's this idea of God change me on the inside, and then the outside is going to change as well. God's work first on the inside will change us on the outside, and it will keep us within the guardrails. It will keep us on the path. First clean the inside of the cup. This is so important because some of us think we can cheat the system. But it doesn't work the other way. Don't get them flip-flopped. We cannot cheat the system. If you try to cheat the system, you're going to crash eventually through the guardrails. You're going to end up in the ditch. And you will hear the words ultimately, woe to you. Pastor Jeff told you guys, uh, I think last week, that he challenged us all to a fitness challenge on the staff, right? And so that's why I was dancing a little bit during worship down there. 
because uh, one of the things we're counting all of our steps. And so <laughs> I, here, I could try to cheat the system. We, we've made jokes about, you know, being tired, and so we're gonna, I'm going to tie my step tracker to my dog, right, and just go play fetch. I could, try, I could try to cheat the system, but ultimately reality will catch up to me. I know what you're thinking, Pastor Chris, you only have to chisel a little bit. Why are you even in this challenge? But even for me, reality would catch up with me, right? Because when I, when I go on the hike that I'm going to get ready to go on, and if I haven't been working out, my numbers, my steps say, man, you've been just in great shape. And I'm like, sucking air, right? It's going to catch up to me. It's going to catch up to me on the scale and ultimately in life with my health. It would not, it would not be the fruit of being physically active, right, and engaging in this uh, fitness challenge. But if my motivation in life became to take care of what God has given me, right, and to engage the discipline of fitness, then the fruit is going to take care of itself. It's the, same, it's the same with God. We can't flip it around. We can't cheat the system. We must allow God to do his work in us and then simply cooperate with him. The beauty, guys, of living inside the guardrails of God's, the path that God has for us, is that as we find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy in him alone, in a relational closeness, as we do that, we're going to experience such joy that we've never had before. If we get our eyes off of all of the, the behavior that we think we, all of the pretending, all of the, the producing, all of the uh, you know trying to look good for God, right? We will experience the greatest Joy. If we simply focus on relational closeness to God, He will change us. You want to be changed on the outside? Spend time with Jesus. Let Him change you from the inside out. Spend time in God's Word. God's Word is living, it's active. If we will simply engage it with our spirit, the legalist, if fo- the legalist which is what one word to describe the Pharisees and the scribes, they focus on religious acts. But the true disciple, follower of Christ, focuses on that relational closeness. And then guess what? Righteousness just grows out of that. And so today, as we look at the guardrails of not getting, not getting ourselves in the way, not allowing ourselves to be on center stage, and not thinking Wrongly, I, I grew up, I love my heritage, but I grew up slightly bent towards this idea that I could do all these things that would somehow produce internal heart change and make me more right with God. No. If we get caught up in that, we will crash through the guardrails. But simply if we focus on him, getting close to Jesus, we'll stay on the path. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word that's living, it's active. Your word says about itself, your Holy Spirit has revealed about your word that it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it cuts right down to the heart of the matter. It divides soul, our mind, will, and emotions from the reality of the spirit and helps us see clearly. Today, as we look at your word, I pray that all of us, our eyes would be open, that we would see the guardrails you've called us to live. 
Pray for my friends that may have yet to trust you, that today they would get a clear picture of life that's been transformed by you. That out of the overflow of a transformed life, good works would come out, and yet you would get all the glory. And people would see it, and it would result in you getting greater glory. And I pray for my friends that are like me. We've been walking this road for a long time. God, may we still value just knowing you and treasuring you and being with you above everything else. May I value you more than I value what people think of me or see of me. Accept that it would bring glory to you as they see me. So change us from the inside out today as we respond at these altars, the place for the hungry. May you be glorified. May you do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.